Welcome to Indiana Ag Shop Talk. I'm your host, Tanner Coulter. On the show, we bring industry experts on to provide value and to improve your farm operation each and every episode. Today, we're going to dive into the discussion of estate planning for the family farm. We've got a great guest with us. Holly Dobbs is an attorney and the owner of Dobbs Legal Group. Welcome, Holly. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Just for the people that don't know you, kind of jump into your background, kind of tell us where you're from and how you became an attorney, and then just tell us a little bit about your practice. Sure. Well, I've come full circle. Uh, My law firm is in Peru, Indiana, and I was born and raised in Peru, Indiana, in Miami County, uh, McConaughey High School, Ball State undergrad, and then I got a job in Indianapolis and, and decided I wanted to go to law school, but I knew I wanted to be more of a transactional attorney. I also wanted to go to business school. So I got my JD and my MBA at the um, uh, in at IU in Indianapolis. And I I was born and raised on a farm in Miami County. And with school and work, I, I was gone for about 18 years. And after law school, got a job in downtown Indianapolis. And um, at, at that firm, I was assigned to the estate planning and wealth transfer group uh, in the private client services. So at big law firms, there's lots of little practice groups and you get put in your niche and you are trained by a mentor very in-depth in one area of the law, as opposed to learning a little bit about all areas of the law. And it was our own farm succession that took me home to Miami County. So I'm the youngest of five by a lot. So my parents are elderly and their health was starting to fail. And none of my other siblings live on the farm or even in the state. So it was clear that my husband and I needed to get back to our farm uh, to help with that transition um, from my father. And we moved home about 10 years ago. uh, And I moved my practice here about six years ago. So um, I still only do this one area of the law that is uh, estate planning, um, I've just picked up my office and, and moved it to my hometown. Okay. And you primarily work kind of in that farming background or ag background? I do now. Um, the law is no different, no matter what you own. If whatever assets are on your balance sheet need to be transitioned to the next generation during your lifetime or at death, it doesn't matter what those assets are. The The difference with me is that I am from a family farm. So 10 years in 4-H showed Angus cattle, all the chores that come along with being raised on a farm. And when we moved home to help my parents, like I said, I got four other siblings and I made my parents sit down with a different attorney and talk about what's next with our family farm because I didn't want to move home. And then when they die, three out of five vote to sell the farm and, and we're, we're gone. So I, I saw how important it was when my parents went through that. Um, and because, you know, I didn't want there to be a conflict of interest. I didn't want to look like baby sister, an attorney, but that was sort of my light bulb moment that, oh, I know how to do this very sophisticated, complicated area of state tax planning and um, succession planning for family businesses. And I know family farms is my background. So just putting those two together, that, that became my focus. And I started doing interviews like this and writing articles and doing seminars. Um, you know, I didn't go to any kind of special 
farm law school. It's just the same laws, but I happen to be from a farm background. And that really helps with the conversations and the vocabularies and, and getting the plan right. Yeah, I think that's good because, I mean, there's a million attorneys out there, but there's not a ton of them that have that same farm background and kind of know the lingo and be able to talk the talk with all the farmers out there, too. So. Yeah, one of my favorite stories is I had a client tell me that his last attorney cost $600 an hour. And towards the end of the meeting, the lawyer asked him what bushels were. Like the end of the meeting, <laughs> that should have been at the beginning of the meeting. If you don't understand the assets on the balance sheet, it's going to be pretty hard to put together a plan to, to transition them to the next generation. Yeah, definitely. Um, so kind of jumping into the discussion of the estate planning, when you're starting with a new client or sitting down, kind of what's that beginning process look like? Where do you kind of begin? So... Um, I'll, I'll always offer to talk to anybody for, for 30 minutes or an hour to just see if they want to work with me. Because once we start the process with a new client, I need to know everything. So to the beginning of our pipeline for planning is an inventory outline where folks put down all sorts of information about their, their, their family, um, their assets, if they've made previous gifts, what they're thinking about who might be in charge in different roles, just to get their wheels turning. And so for a lot of people who call in, they don't want to give me all that information if they're not even quite sure they're going to work with me. Uh, so an initial consultation is more overview, nothing substantive. I don't want to, I want to know about your uncle or your grandparents or who's fighting among the cousins, just generally introduce myself and explain the process. And then for folks who want to work with me before they ever come in, I ask that they gather a lot of information so that when we meet, it is efficient and I have the information I need to help them make good decisions and then we're ready to move forward. So um, there is a lot of organization and work on the client's part that needs to take place first because it is not efficient at all to show up at a lawyer's office with an empty table between you and the lawyer say, okay, how do you spell your daughter's name? And what's your kid's addresses? I mean, that, that's just a waste of time and money, so. Waste of time and money for everyone, so it's, so what, on those lists, kind of what are some of those things that you're asking that they get, financial statements, insurance statements, what, what are you asking for? Right. So the, the personal financial statement is home base. And most of my clients laugh about the statement that they give to their banker. They're like, that's not real. Uh, that, it's close enough to keep my bankers happy. It typically has the land underreported. Um, a lot of times it will have machinery and equipment at book value. You know, that's what the tax return balance sheet, you know, depreciation schedule shows what it's worth now after it's been written down. Um, typically those financial statements if they have life insurance information, it's just cash value. And so an accurate financial statement is home base for good estate planning. And I need to know what you're worth dead. So don't underreport the value of your acres. If your neighbor just sold for 11,000 an acre, that impacts what your ground is worth if you die tomorrow. And life insurance counts. I need to know the death benefit. You know, what would you be worth if you died? That includes the value of your life insurance. And, and what's the machinery really worth? If there was going to be an auction tomorrow, what would fair market value be? I don't care what it is on your books. The other very important part is not only what you own, but how it's titled. 
directly impacts how it's going to pass at death. So is it jointly owned, husband and wife, or father and son, or siblings who inherited from a prior generation? You know, is it joint ownership? Um, is it just husband, just wife? D does anything have a TOD or POD? So those are transfer on death, payable on death designations. Um, and for certain assets, it's not how it's titled that matters so much, but who the beneficiaries are. So anything that is a contract, like life insurance, annuities, IRAs, for those assets, I don't just want to know what it's worth and who owns it. I want to know who are the current beneficiaries. And, and that takes some digging because it's not necessarily printed on your monthly statement or your quarterly statement, but it is crucial to make sure the right people get the right assets at death. And, and sometimes we have to tweak those pieces. Um, and so I push clients hard to go confirm all those details and bring me a complete picture because I can move a lot faster and more efficiently if I have all the information and, and can help you decide how the pieces should fit together. Yeah, I think it gets trickier to farmers because they're probably one of the few large businesses that they're buying in their individual names or there's two brothers buying things together. I mean, I've, I've got people in my family that dad's buying stuff and all of a sudden now there's all him and his two sons are buying things three different ways and everything's titled differently, which in most businesses, everything's just bought by the business. And so farming. Right. And, and the accountant is really helpful there because usually they know who paid what because they deducted it and they're tracking the depreciation. So as far as jointly owned equipment and things, uh, the, the accountant's schedules are very helpful. But it just blows my mind that millions of dollars of farm machinery has zero certificate of title. So if you buy a crummy little trailer to haul stuff around, you get a certificate of title and a license plate from the BMV, but you can have millions of dollars worth of farm equipment and no way to prove who owns it. And so I help paper that up. And if it's inside an entity or if it isn't, or it needs to be, um, we, we get specific about identifying how the machinery is titled and how it's gonna pass uh, either during lifetime or at death. Yeah. And I know one of the things I think you would jump into whenever you're having one of your talks throughout the bat um, is this big debate of a lot of families are wanting to split the farm evenly or equally, and I know you were always kind of saying that fair is not always equal. So kind of jump into that and what you mean by that. Yeah, it's it's really tricky, and I, I try to just get this out there at the front end of the planning so people can change the way they think. Um, but it's okay to treat your kids differently. If you don't have a will or a trust or any planning, the state of Indiana writes one for you, and, and it says who gets what percentage, and it is a percentage of every asset. You slice every asset and fill up every bucket with a little piece of every asset. And that's rarely gonna be the right outcome. If you have on-farm children and off-farm children, do, do, do the off-farm children really need to own the combines and tractors and all the machinery and equipment? Um, and, and if the land is like that, if the acres are just sliced and diced and all the kids' names end up as equal owners on the deed, any one of those kids can force a sale. And most folks don't understand that. They think it's majority rules. Well, I got four kids and three of them have their head on straight. So they'll keep the fourth one in line and everything will be fine. But it's not majority rules. If their name is on the deed because they've gotten a slice of every acre and undivided interest, um, they can force a partition action. If they can't work it out with their siblings to to get bought out and force a sale because it's real easy to divide cash into equal fourths. So 
equal is, is really hard if the goal is to keep the farm together. If the goal is to sell everything and split the money, that's easy. Equal is easy. But, but otherwise, I coach my clients to find what's fair. You know, there, there's teeter-totter, and we don't want it to be completely off-kilter. But it, as if it's close enough, then, then that ought to help them sleep well at night, knowing they've found a fair balance, and the farm has a good chance of continuing at the next generation. So it is different for every family, and I don't impose my thoughts about what I think is fair onto them. Everyone is different. Um, and it's tricky, you know, if, if I got a husband and wife at my table and wife wants it to be exactly equal and husband wants the teeter-totter more like this, man, it's, it's tricky. But my goal is to help people find the balance so that they feel good about it. And sort of the way I describe it is if all your kids are a little bit disappointed, you've probably find the right balance. You know, you don't want one saying, yes, you know, I, I got it over on my siblings and I, I won the inheritance. That, that's not good. Um, so if they all kind of wish that they'd gotten a little more, that might be the right balance. Yeah, absolutely. And I know kind of talking about that, of keeping that good balance, you're always saying be open in the discussions. Um, how do you work with farmers and make sure that they're kind of making sure they're sitting down with their kids and the whole family and kind of keeping those discussions open as they go through this process? Well, I don't have a magic wand and, and I know there are some clients that just are not going to talk about it. That's kind of the old school thought is this is private. You don't discuss these sorts of things. And um, I, I wish I could make everyone be transparent, but I can't. I just encourage it. I suggest it. I offer to host the meetings like, hey, bring your kids in and I'll explain everything that we've done as you're signing it. Um, sometimes I'll write letters. Okay. So I I send clients summary letters when I send them draft documents and then we make some tweaks. And so when it's done, I said, Hey, let me, let me tweak this letter. So it looks like exactly what we put in place. Then you can share that with your kids. Um, and if, if you want to do it via zoom or via teleconference or come in, I'm, I'm happy to help you talk about it, but that is the best way to make sure the plan succeeds because if, if someone is surprised at death, if a kid is surprised because they thought they were going to get way more from mom and dad or something different from mom and dad, and it doesn't look like what they were expecting or what they think they are entitled to, which that entitlement is dangerous, then that's where lawsuits start. And lots of money can be wasted at lawsuits, or even if they don't run to court, at the very least, Thanksgiving's ruined, nobody wants to talk to each other anymore. And so the benefit of open communication and transparency during the process uh, is you quash that entitlement. You nip it in the bud. Nobody's expecting anything other than what you've got planned for them. And it's, it's very helpful, but I understand it, it, it's difficult. It can be very overwhelming to think about sharing the plan for the kids if you're afraid you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. But if the goal is to help the farm succeed, it, it's just a necessary part of business. If you wait after death, it gets dangerous to try to read what's happened on paper and figure out what's Oh, yes. All the good manners go out the window when mom and dad are gone. It's much better when mom and dad are there to say, this is how it's going to be. Uh, and if you don't like it, tough. But when mom and dad are gone, then, you know, the claws can come out. Yeah. And, and money seems to always talk. Like you said, if one kid wants to sell, if it's not titled right, they have that opportunity to try to take the auction. And the land values at 10, 11, 12,000 acres start having some wealthy farms out there that yeah. I don't want to farm anymore. 
And I know another thing that you always talk about is how things are titled, and we jump back there with tenants in common. Kind of explain to farmers what kind of a mistake that is if they're having everything just titled tenants in common, what kind of ramifications that can have. So um, it, if, if ground is owned as tenants in common, each owner decides where their portion goes. And a lot of times half and half, but you know, it can be any percentage. And so um, e each owner's estate plan or lack of estate plan is, is gonna govern where their share of that land goes. Very common for husband and wives to own farms as tenants in common. And lawyers did this, it was very good planning under the old tax law. It was important that each husband and wife owned enough assets to use up their own estate tax exemption. And so the exemption used to be 600,000, a million, two million, three and a half. So it, it's always changing. And along the way, anybody who had seen an estate planning lawyer was probably retitling ground so that each husband and wife each owned a million or each owned two million worth of ground. And instead of putting some farms in husband's name and some farms in wife's name, a lot of them are just equal 50-50. And so if it's done on purpose as a part of an estate plan, the documents behind that tenant and common interest will govern where they go. And that's fine. The, the bigger problem is what I mentioned earlier is if mom and dad's estate plan just leaves ground equally to the kids. That means their names are on the deed and they are tenants in common. And there is a risk there that any one of those tenants in common can force a sale. So it also goes the other way. I've had clients come to me and, and I always want to see their deeds. I don't just want to go off how they say it's titled or how GIS and those, the tiny little characters available in the space says it's titled. I want to see the deeds because I've seen plenty that were jointly owned. So not tenants in common, but joint tenants as rights of survivorship. So for example, mom and son went to an auction and they bought the farms, each paid half with the thought that mom's half would go to all the children and he'd have to buy it. So there was money, but they titled it jointly with rights of survivorship. And that's last man standing. Um, same thing, I had two brothers owned ground joint with rights of survivorship. And they each thought their wife was going to get a half at death. I'm like, no, it's it's last man standing. So it, it has a direct impact on what's going to happen at death. And so titling needs to be examined and perhaps corrected. Um, but it's something that gets overlooked, right? You go to auctions and you go through to closing and you work with a title company and names get slapped on deeds. A lot of times without legal advice or real thought, you're more concerned about working with your banker and getting the money right. And then, then the deed comes out and maybe it's not quite right. So as a part of this, it's part of why I pull so much information in the beginning from my clients, how it's titled really matters. And then when you're doing the plan, dictating how it's going to be titled when you're gone is crucial. If you want different kids to own different farms that it's a hundred percent theirs and they can do what they want. That's great. And that's, not the same as all my kids own all my farms equally. So um, careful thought is necessary and proper titling during lifetime and then at the next generation. Is there any way you kind of like to see things titled or does it just all come down to that individual farm family? It all comes down to the family and it is different with everyone I work with. Um, for some families, they just keep it simple and every kid gets their own farm. Every kid gets their own number of acres. Um, 
and we can leave it titled as husband and wife and through the estate plan say when both husband and wife are gone, here's, here's who's going to own which farm. Uh, sometimes if folks are concerned about probate administration, we can use TOD deeds, transfer on death deeds. Um, doesn't change a thing during lifetime, doesn't impact your ability to mortgage it or sell it, but at death, it automatically belongs to the beneficiary you've designated. Um, and for other families, it makes sense to keep the land in continued trust. So not husband and wife, but let's have it owned by a trust. And then at the second death, that trust is going to continue for a while. And maybe it's going to provide a right to farm to a related successor or, or a non-related farm successor. But, but to have it um, held up in trust so the kids can't sell it, the kids can't lease it to people other than who were supposed to have the first rights. And keeping it in trust also helps if the kids get divorced or if they die young, we, we control where, where the land ultimately ends up. And for other families, it makes sense to title the land in the name of an entity, like a land holding LLC. And so husband and wife own the LLC and they write the rules that govern the LLC. Those are in an operating agreement. And then when they die, their kids inherit pieces of paper that says, okay, you own X percent of this family LLC subject to all these rules that mom and dad put in place during lifetime. Uh, and those can include first rights to lease or, you know, what's going to happen if land is sold? Does it take unanimous agreement or a supermajority? Um, all those rules can be put in place. And that's several steps better than just your names are on the deed and any one of you could force a sale. So there are lots of ways families like for their land to be titled. But I, again, I don't dictate that. I don't tell them how I like it to be titled. Yeah. And jumping back on, you mentioned trust. Kind of how are you using trust and estate planning and when do farmers typically need to look into trust or think about using them? So there are a lot of different kinds of trusts and I'm not one of those lawyers that says everybody must have a trust. Um, I, I like them for a lot of different reasons, but not everybody needs one. Um, revocable trusts are good to avoid probate. If you title assets in the name of your trust during lifetime, or if you use POD and TOD to point to the trust, uh, that helps avoid probate. There are irrevocable trusts that during lifetime can help with tax planning because when you make a transfer to an irrevocable trust, you've completed a gift. So if you're trying to use up your estate tax exemption or do an estate tax freeze, you know, transfer assets out off your balance sheet before they appreciate, Irrevocable trusts are good. Starts to get tricky there because you want somebody else besides you to be the trustee because you really want to get it at arm's length. Um, some lawyers use irrevocable trusts to help for Medicaid planning. And just to clarify all the whole nursing home conversation and what happens if I need the nursing home, that is outside the scope of my practice. Um, lawyers who help with that are in a very specific niche referred to as elder law. And so I'm, I'm a good issue spotter and I help people at the front end say, okay, you don't need me, but let me refer you to an elder law lawyer, elder care lawyer. So um, that's another use of irrevocable trusts. And then when you're gone, if, if for any reason you don't want somebody to inherit your assets right away when you die, then you need a trust. You need a continuing trust. So one example uh, is if you're in a second or third or fourth marriage and you want some income off your farm ground to go to your spouse, 
but ultimately you want your natural children to inherit the land, well then trusts are wonderful for that. And that's usually something that is in the estate plan and it's funded at death. It's a, a trust for spouse's benefit. You have minor kids you need a trust. I mean, you, you can't own or control, you can't control assets if you're not 18 years old in our state. And most folks wouldn't want their millions of dollars worth of stuff in the hands of an 18 year old anyway. So for young children, you want a trust that lasts until they reach certain ages, or maybe for a certain number of years after your death, you want to make sure that there's somebody helping the kids get used to um, owning these assets and being responsible for these assets. Um, and some trusts go on for a whole generation or two because folks want that control of divorce protection and making sure their kids don't die young and leave their share of the assets to a spouse who then remarries, you know, just a few steps down the road and, and the farm can be outside the family. So there are these generational uh, trusts that help make sure that the land stays in the blood. And then on top of all of that trust discussion is some very complicated estate tax law that helps decide which trust you need when, but I'm a very strong believer that the tax discussion shouldn't drive the bus. That shouldn't be what comes first. The family's goals for taking care of spouse and kids and for keeping the farm intact if they want, those goals come first. And then we figure out the most tax efficient way to get it done. Yeah, that's good. And you mentioned a couple of times divorce and second or third marriages. I know something to harp on is prenups. And you said every farm kid should have one. Why is that? So uh, it, there's such a stigma to prenuptial agreements. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about them whenever I can. Um, the reason why they're, as impor they're important is that very strong property rights come with a marriage certificate. And those are property rights at divorce and at death, that spouses are entitled to certain things. And unless you have validly waived those rights in a prenuptial agreement in the state of Indiana, uh, your, your spouse is entitled at divorce and at death. And if the plan is for the family farm to stay in the family, that can be a huge disruption. So, um, so often I hear from these, these young farm kids, well, I don't own anything. There's nothing on my balance sheet, so I don't need a prenup. And that is so short-sighted because I'm talking to the grandparents and the parents, and I know there is a significant amount of wealth that will someday hit that kid's balance sheet. And having a prenuptial agreement in place that says, any farm assets that I receive through gift or inheritance from my family shall be classified as separate property not subject to division at divorce and not subject to election at death. Just that simple statement makes the planning so much simpler for the succession plan because we don't have to worry about, okay, let's have some really restrictive trusts and let's not let children inherit assets because they might be at risk in the event of divorce. If we know there's a prenup in place, it can be simple. Here, here are your assets. Go continue the farm, grow the business. And if there's a divorce, you and your spouse split what you've built together, but you don't split the millions of dollars that came to you from a generation above. Um, so I'm a huge advocate for that. It's, it is not just the rich and famous in Hollywood. Um, it's more important for farmers because it's more sentimental. I mean, these assets, this dirt, 
this machinery and equipment means more than just a few million dollars in an investment account that some rich people divide up in their divorce. It's more emotional. Um, and it's not just the young broke kids that are going to inherit someday. It, it is the golden year remarriages after you lose your spouse and you, you grieve an appropriate amount of time, which is apparently two weeks for some fellas, uh, and you remarry, there is significant risk to the family plan and to the family farm if there is not a prenuptial agreement in place before that remarriage. So I'm all for finding love again after grief, but the prenup is so important before there is a marriage. Because if you get a marriage certificate from the state, that there's a whole lot of rights that come with that. And I think even Indiana, I'm sure other states, if I'm correct, uh, having postnuptial agreements just aren't, they don't really do much compared to prenuptial agreements. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, so again, I only do this one little area of the law of estate planning and wealth transfer, but my family law friends, uh, have, have shown me some of the case law there. And Indiana just doesn't really respect post-nups. Uh, that would be an uphill battle. You can sign one, but I don't know that it would be enforceable. Prenuptial agreements, Indiana courts uphold those all day long, as long as they're done right. I mean, that's how it is with any contract. You want to do it the right way, right? Um, full disclosure of financial assets, plenty of time before the wedding so it doesn't seem like duress. Because if you're having somebody sign a prenup at the rehearsal dinner, that's not going to stand up. They'll be able to get that thrown out um, for duress. So if they're done right, Indiana upholds prenuptial agreements. But there is just not a lot of good case law on postnups. Um, so there are other planning techniques you can look into as far as LLCs or trusts to, to work around that. Um, but yeah, prenups are better. Yeah. And I know you mentioned that you kind of stay in this narrow window on the estate planning side and you have this more team approach for other advisors out there, whether that's the CPA, insurance advisors, maybe other attorneys, if it's elder law and stuff, kind of talk about how you bring in those other uh, experts, professionals for the team approach and kind of some of those people you work with. Sure. So I'm really good at helping people with what's going to happen when you die. So if you died tomorrow, what do you want to happen? Okay, I'm going to draft those documents. But very frequently, farmers are coming to me and we're discussing, okay, how do you bring your son into operations? Or how do you bring your nephews into operations? Or how do you figure out your retirement so that it's not a complete tax disaster? Well, if you're still breathing while you're making these decisions, there are income tax consequences to that. And I got to have the CPA at the table. And they have to help with the overall plan and be aware of what we're doing so they can report it properly, but, but help design the plan so, this, so that nothing slips through the cracks. It is very dangerous to work with a lawyer who just puts their blinders on and they're the only one helping you. Um, sometimes I think maybe it's ego that some lawyers are like, no, I'll do everything. You don't need any, anyone else. But, but that is short-sighted because I'm good at this piece of the law. I am not an accountant. I am not a financial planner. I'm not an insurance specialist or expert and and all of those pieces have to click together properly the way assets are titled the way the debt is structured um, we're gonna have to have the banker involved um, getting the beneficiary designations right you know I don't have to do all that I have to raise the issue and help the clients other advisors fill in those gaps um, 
had an example last week. I was working with a farmer who was putting all his machinery and equipment into an S corporation. Well, that's a two-step process. You, you put it in the entity and then file with the IRS to treat it like an S corp. And the nobody had told the accountants that we were doing that. I was, I was co-counseling. It was an Illinois client. So I'm co-counseling with an Illinois lawyer and they got everything done and they checked, checked, checked it off their list. And I said, anybody tell the accountant? Has anyone given the accountant copies of this? And that team approach is often overlooked when you're just trying to um, go through your list and get things completed and crossed off your list. But, but it's crucial. And all of this can be overwhelming to the client. I mean, my farmers are incredibly sophisticated, but this is tricky stuff. But when you're changing the way you've done things for years or for generations, they're not familiar with that territory yet. The advisors need to be uh, on the same page, giving advice and helping through these transitions. Yeah, that's good. And after they kind of get their plan established and you finish up with a client, how often are you recommending they go back and review those plans and sit back down again? So my rule of thumb is five years. We're going to generate a form letter for our clients and say, hey, it's been five years. Should we talk? Um, but it's five years or if there's been a change in the family, if there's been a change in the assets, or if there's been a change in the law. So for example, if there's a divorce or a premature death or a falling out, um, I mean, the emotions run high and I have seen families have huge um huge problems where they, they don't speak anymore. Well, if that has happened, the plan probably needs to be adjusted to account for that. Or if everything had been put together to bank on one grandson coming into farm and he dies young in a car accident, well, we're going to need to adjust the plan. Um, or if there's been a divorce, obviously. Um, but if, if the assets change, right? So grandma and grandpa died, mom and dad inherited a whole bunch more farm ground okay, well, we might need to address things and see if any additional planning needs to be done or if anything needs to be tweaked. Um, and then if the law changes, and oh my goodness, this area of the estate and gift tax changes all the time, every time there's an election. And clients get mad at me. They said, I had a perfectly good estate plan. I paid a lot of money for it. And now you're telling me I have to redo it? Like, well, the landscape shifted under you. You had a perfectly good plan under the old law, but under the new law, it wouldn't have the same intended results. So you need to tweak it. So just generally understanding that estate planning shouldn't be a one and done scenario, right? Something's gonna happen. It's going to need to be tweaked. Um, it, for starters, it should be drafted as flexibly as possible so that a lot of contingencies are covered. You know, if this kid predeceases, then what? But still, there are gonna be some occurrences that require some some tweaking and some dusting off. So just go into it expecting that. Uh, that way it is up to date and reflects your current wishes when you do die. Yeah, and I know talking about changes in the new administration that's out there. So there's been rumors of changes coming, whether it's capital gains tax or state tax, kind of what are you seeing that could be potentials in the next year or two? And kind of how are you handling that with the current clients? So I'm seeing panic. Um, and, and we're still in, in the unknown, but at least we have a proposal. So just very briefly, the current estate tax exemption is $11.7 million per person. So $23.4 million for a married couple. And this is under the Trump Tax Act, and that Trump Act expires in 2026. So that whole raising of the exemption was only temporary 
anyway, it has a built-in sunset. So I already knew that I was going to be incredibly busy in 2025 doing planning to capture this high exemption before it goes down. So under the current act in 2026, the exemption would be 6 million per person, 12 million for a married couple. So it, it was just arbitrarily doubled for a period of years. So there is an opportunity while it's high to do some gifting, to use the exemption to shelter gifts, to get them off your balance sheet. Ideally to shelter gifts of assets that are discounted in value, like closely held entity ownership and that will appreciate later. So if you gift an asset that's going to appreciate, that's the best kind of estate planning because the appreciation happens off your balance sheet. So the proposal on the table from Bernie Sanders is an estate tax exemption of 3.5 million each. So 7 million for a married couple. So if you're worth less than $7 million, you can, you can breathe a sigh of relief about the estate tax. Right now, that, that's the direction we're headed. Um, I hate to even summarize this law be, because it's not passed. It's simply one proposal. And, and a, state, a tax act is like making sausage, right? It goes through all sorts of different committees and it's changed and amended and it comes out the other end looking completely different. So I'm just talking about the proposed act. So... Clients were worth more than 7 million, but less married clients were worth more than seven, but less than 23 have a window of opportunity to do some gifting to avoid a state tax that's going to hit their assets uh, if, they, if they don't use this exemption now. And there are lots of different ways to get at that. I just want to leave it at there is a window of opportunity. Um, your other question about capital gains tax. So maybe you're relieved because, hey, I'm worth less than $7 million. The estate tax isn't going to get me. Well, there are also discussions about imposing capital gains tax at death. So that farm that you paid $1,000 an acre for that's worth $10,000 an acre now would be taxed at your death. Oh, well, there's $9,000 9, an acre of capital gain, and we're going to tax that. And, and that has never been on the books before. It's simply a proposal. You know, I can't tell you that it used to be there and went away. This would be brand new um, and, and it would be catastrophic for family farms. So that might be a reason to gift during lifetime so that it's not going to be subject to that capital gains tax at death. The, the, it goes hand in hand with this step up in basis, which is an incredibly powerful, powerful provision in the Internal Revenue Code. And, and a lot of people don't, don't understand it. Anything you own at death is going to get its cost basis stepped up to the fair market value on your date of death. So same farm, you bought it for $1,000 an acre. It's worth 10 now. If you sold it, you'd have $9,000 of capital gain. If you die and your heirs sell it the next day, they have zero capital gain. And so that is incredibly powerful. And as long as you were under the exemption, there wasn't going to be a state tax on it. And there was a step up in basis. And so the proposal now gets, still gets you the stuffed up basis, but because they're going to charge a capital gains tax against it. So that, that's not passed yet. We'll see if it gets through. And if it does, it might have a whole bunch of loopholes and exceptions for family farms. We'll just have to see about that. Um, but it's scary. I mean, it, it could be catastrophic if everything passed that's been proposed. Uh, it could be a catastrophe for family farms and we'd be struggling how to plan around it. But let's see 
what comes out and, and then we'll plan accordingly. Yeah, I know it's uh, hard to speculate, but I know it's a lot of farmers have seen it and be concerned. So I wanted to at least bring it up today. And one other thing in there I've seen just on one article, I'd be hard to believe that it happened, but they said they could even go retroactive back to maybe the start of this year or start another year when they put in plan. Do you ever see anything like that happening? Um, I, I don't feel that it will be retroactive, but legally, constitutionally, it could be. So I'm not putting my malpractice insurance on the line. I just, I don't feel like the estate and gift tax portion will be made retroactively because as a practical matter, if, if I make a gift to you today of a thousand acres on April 21st and I use part of my $11 million exemption to shelter that transfer, transaction's done. I don't see how they could come back in September or December and say, I owe gift tax on that because I gave you more than 3.5 million. Um, let me back up a step. The other piece of this proposal is that lifetime gifts would be limited to $1 million. Right now, you can gift $11 million during lifetime or at death, it doesn't matter. The exemption is used to shelter however you move those assets off your balance sheet, whether you're alive or dead. And the proposal would limit $1 million during lifetime and the rest you can use at death. To, to stop that benefit that I mentioned of you get the appreciation out of your estate. Um, there are some other proposals about the annual gift tax exclusion. A lot of folks are familiar with that. You know, for years it was $10,000. You can give away $10,000 per year per person. Um, and along the way it was indexed for inflation. So right now it's $15,000 per person. And that is being proposed to be limited um, if you're gifting to trusts which a lot of my clients do. That is a common technique. You, you gift assets into a trust. Well, that would be limited and you wouldn't, you wouldn't get all those exemptions. There would be a really tight lid on that. Um, or if you were gifting ownership in closely held businesses that's discounted, which that's the other thing I do all the time, right? We got a land LLC. We want to get ownership for the next generation. We give pieces of paper. Here's your piece of the LLC each year. And hey, it's been discounted for lack of control and lack of marketability. That's super common. And and there's a target on that. There's also a target on valuation discounts and 1031 exchanges. But, you know, let, let's not get all worried about the what ifs. Let's let's wait and see what comes out and then plan accordingly. Yeah, I think that's good. And for some of those farmers I see, there's a lot of farmers that they know it's going to be a big undertaking. So they just don't do anything or they don't want to have those hard conversations. If you could just give one piece of advice as we start to close down of what you give those farmers to kind of push them to start that process? Well, doing nothing isn't an option if you want your farm to continue at the next generation. If you do nothing, it's super easy to have an auction and for your heirs to split the money um, and you don't need to worry about it. But if your goal is to keep an operation going or to keep land ownership intact, that, that takes some planning. And I wish it was easier. Uh, I try to make it as painless as possible, but it takes some hard work on your part and some organization of information and some decision-making so, so that estate planning lawyers can do their job. And, and it's worth it. I mean, think about all the time and effort you've put into building your balance sheet and collecting these assets. And if you really just wanna do nothing and leave it, leave it to chance, that's fine. Uh, I got accused once of legacy shaming so I'm not legacy shaming you. I'm not saying you have to make sure your farm survives for generations. 
just explaining that if that's your goal and if you want there to be a legacy, uh, that's going to take some planning. And as we close out, anything else that you'd like to add? Anything that you think we've missed? I think we've covered a lot, but just know that it's very personal. It should be a very personal plan. So do some thinking, do some soul searching and, and jot down your thoughts before you go talk to a lawyer. Uh, don't just go sit down and say, tell me what to do. You know, if you've got two or three or four kids and they're not all involved, think about what might feel fair. And it's okay if you don't understand the estate tax laws or the way wills or trusts are structured under Indiana law. You just put it down in layman terms. This is what I want and give it to the lawyer and the lawyer can translate it into legalese and help you decide what tools you need to pick it up. Um, but, but take some ownership of that planning process by gathering your thoughts and, and putting it down in layman's terms. Yeah, that's good. Well, thanks, Polly, for uh, again, joining us today. I think we got into a lot of good topics. I think it'll be um, All right, good luck. Everybody stay safe and hope the crops didn't get too much snow on them that it already sprouted. Recording this the day after we just had three inches of snow here in Indiana. So mm. happy spring. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks everyone for listening again to another episode of Indian Ag Shop Talk. I'm your host, Tanner Coulter. Hope you guys took some good notes today. And again, join us on the next episode. Thank you.